following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. It's good to be back. I feel like I've been out of the pulpit for a long time now, but it's kind of good for me to do that every now and then because it, it reminds me of stuff that I don't get to experience and remember when I'm here. We spent a couple of weeks in Chicago with Jamie's family, and we were at their church, and, you know, it's hard, well, you won't know this, most of you, it's hard for a pastor, I think, to sit in another church and just relax. I can't, I couldn't do it, because the entire time through both the Sundays we were there, my mind is, like, looking around, processing stuff, asking questions, thinking about things. Uh, I'm watching the people around me at one point. There was a kid in front of me one Sunday who clearly did not want to be there, and he had uh, his phone beside him going through Facebook. There were a couple of grandmas up to my front right, just about four rows in front of where I was sitting, uh, who were having a conversation solving the world's problems. There was uh, another guy over here who was sleeping. There was somebody with bronchitis off to my right. Uh, and I was just sitting there thinking, it's hard to sit out in a, in a, a room full of people uh, who don't think they're being distracting, but sometimes are. So don't be that person, that's all I'm saying, Okay. Having been out there and listened to it for a couple weeks, I can come back and gently remind you of that. The other hard part that's hard, at least it is for me, is listening to someone else preach. See, I have this weird love-hate relationship with preaching. Like, on the Sundays I'm doing it, I get up and go, oh, man, I wish I could just sit there and listen. And on Sundays I'm just sitting there listening and go, man, I wish I could be up there doing that. Because the whole time I'm listening to someone else, I'm thinking, would I say it like that? Would I arrange it? How would I do that? Like, I... I'm not being critical, not trying to be critical. I'm just thinking the whole time of what I would do if I were in their shoes. And I know it's a hard, hard job. So uh, thank you for listening each and every week. We're going to read verses 12 to 31 here in Mark 14. And then, as always, we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 12. Mark writes, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man... If he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out uh, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Father, I feel like in some respects we are beginning to tread upon very holy ground. And I don't want to necessarily make more out of this portion of your son's earthly ministry than all the others. And yet it is true, Father, that this next 24 hours of his life, the next 72 hours of history, will forever change everything for all of us. It's because of his death, it's because of of his burial, his resurrection, that we have gathered here this morning and that we have hope to stand before you someday accepted. And so even though in some senses this perhaps is no more significant than any other portion of of Jesus' life, we we, we recognize that, that our hope is found in what is about to unfold. And so as we walk into this over the next few weeks, I pray that you will give us a, a, a somberness, not a, not a grieving kind of somberness, but just a, 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 a reality of what is, is unfolding before our very eyes, that we will recognize your eternal plan, that we will see your great love for us, that you sent your son to die for us, and that our hearts will respond accordingly. We we can take these things for granted because we've heard them for so long and we're so familiar with them, but I pray, Lord, that you will give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear in the weeks ahead. And so thank you for your word this morning. Please speak through me. May your spirit be active in applying your word to each and every heart in this room. May we see Jesus and your great love and grace towards us in him this morning, we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin today uh, by sharing a very personal story that I don't think I've ever shared publicly. I've shared it privately on a few occasions with individuals when they were going through a similar circumstance, um, but never quite like this. My dad died on July 26, 2001. I was 23 years old. He had a massive heart attack. He was 58 at the time. Now, this wasn't the first heart attack he had ever had or the first time we knew anything about his, his health. He, his first heart attack had occurred about seven years before that when I was 16. My dad was a chain smoker. He was morbidly obese. He was completely inactive. So he's the kind of candidate who was asking for a heart attack. It's not the kind of person who's like, oh, what a tragedy. We, he, he was basically seeking one, it seemed like, in some respects. And one day uh, that summer, if I remember correctly, He felt a pain and tightness in his chest, and so we took him to the emergency room, and sure enough, he had had a a light heart attack, and they kept him in the hospital for several days and did an angioplasty, I think it was, or something like that, to try to clear out his arteries. And, you know, as a a 16-year-old kid going through that for the first time, I'm being faced with the reality of of my dad dying, and, and I was probably more scared and angry than I could ever communicate to you this morning. Um, over the next few years, his health continued to decline. He was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. 
and emphysema. He would have these little mini strokes here and there. But, you know, when you live with that for a time, and some of you will be able to relate to this in various ways with different things, when you've lived with someone who's very sick like that for a time, you, you almost become numb to it. You're like, in the back of your mind, you know that they could drop dead of a heart attack or stroke at any moment. You know that truth. But practically speaking, you're like, well, they've made it through this and they made it through that, so they'll be fine, right? They'll, so it's going to keep going. Nothing's, nothing's going to happen. And so you don't really think about it. Well, fast forward now to the summer of 2000, and I was interning at a church in Concord, New Hampshire for that particular summer. And I had been there maybe at this point about eight weeks, and over the course of those eight weeks, my dad's health had declined even further, and he had been in the hospital once or maybe twice, I can't remember now, but in both times that he went, uh, they didn't think it was like, you know, serious or bad, they thought he'd be fine, and so I didn't attempt to, to make a trip home, I'd just talk to him, check on him, that kind of thing, and keep going. That was until just about the end of July, I received a phone call from my mom in tears, telling me, my dad had been hospitalized again at this point, telling me that they were putting my dad in hospice. Well, <laughs> even though you should know that that's coming in that scenario, you're not prepared for it. Not, not at all. And I wasn't prepared for it. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and, and so despite all that time, despite all of his health problems, I wasn't I wasn't ready to face the reality of my dad's death. And yet here it was on the phone, right? I had to I had to, to talk to him and, and discuss it. And, and not knowing how bad off he truly was, not knowing for sure if I would make it home in time, because at this point we didn't know anything. The doctor just thought it was, it was time. I sat in an office that somebody let me sit in, and for the next 30 to 45 minutes, I talked to my father. And what I thought would very likely be, or very possibly be, our last conversation together on this earth. And this was no normal conversation. My dad and I had always been close. Uh, he was the kind of person that I could very easily just sit down and talk to for long periods of time. But, but that conversation that day was unlike any other one we'd ever had, because this was the conversation where we were saying goodbye. And so as you can probably imagine, you know, the types of things you say to one another in such a conversation, I told him how much I loved him. Um, I'm going to try not to cry. If I do, I have a, a corny joke to tell you to get me out of it. Uh, I told him how much I loved him. I told him how glad I was that he had been my father. He told me how much he loved me and how proud he was of me as a son. And in the end, we said everything to each other that we wanted to say. I mean, I mean that. We said everything. We didn't, didn't have any regrets. I didn't leave anything out there that I just wished I could have told him and, and chose not to and that was the end of the conversation. Well, as it turned out, he ended up living for a whole, almost another year after that conversation. It was actually kind of funny because I rush home, get home, get to hospice care. He's in the hospice. He's aggravating the nurses. He stays there for like 10 days. They're like, you've got to leave. He goes home uh, and lives for almost another year before he finally died there in July of 2001. But, but the strange thing was is that even with an extra full year of time, after that conversation, there was not a single moment or single day, a single time in any of that 12 months that ever replaced that one phone conversation that day. You know, this is going to be the 15th anniversary of my dad's death this year. And I can say to you honestly, no dramatics, no, no embellishment at all, that to this day, when I think back on all the things that, 
that transpired around my dad's sickness and eventual death, there was, there's nothing that has meant more to me and that I have been more thankful for than that final conversation. And I share this story with you because it is the closest that I can come in my own heart and in my own experience to what we have just read here in Mark chapter 14. You know, we're in the, the home stretch of Mark now. Uh, I have committed, and I'm going to share this publicly so that I can be held accountable to do it. I have committed myself to be in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, that's the resurrection section of Mark, on Easter Sunday. It's March 27th. So between now and March 27th, we're going to finish out chapter 14 and go through all of chapter 15. I think we can do that without any problems. And as I've looked through what's remaining here before us, I have found it helpful, partially because this is just how my mind operates, I have found it helpful to divide our remaining text into five scenarios in which we will see Jesus operate, function, interact with people over the next few hours of his life. Here they are, it's Jesus in the upper room, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus on trial, Jesus on the cross, and Jesus in the tomb. And all five of these scenarios are going to occur in about a 24-hour period for him as this story unfolds, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, because that's a lot of stuff. A lot of big parts of the story that are going to happen in a very small window of time. Each of these scenarios is unique in its own way. And in terms of this very first scenario, the one we've read about this morning, the thing that is particularly unique about it is that it represents the absolute last time that Jesus has to really spend free, uninterrupted, dedicated time with his disciples here on earth. Uh, yes, there will be a few more things that they're going to talk about or interact on as the story unfolds over the next few hours, but they're going to be very brief, very short. There's not a lot of meat to that section. This is, this is really it. This is their last conversation, which is, of course, why I thought about that conversation I had on the phone with my dad. Because there's a strange reality that comes over you when you know when you know that you may be having your last conversation with somebody. Sometimes we have last conversations and we don't know. But when you know it's your last conversation, you, you, don't, you don't waste your words. You don't just spend time talking about nothing. You don't just talk about the weather and sports and who cares about this and that. When it's your last time to talk with someone, you say the things that matter most because you don't want to have any regrets. And as you look at all four Gospels and the way that these four Gospel writers have all of them talked about this scene, which I guess I should pause and just point out to you is really unique in and of itself because there aren't very many scenes in Jesus's life where all four Gospel writers talk about it. This is one of those rare moments where they're all going to talk about the same scene. When you see uh, how all of them talk about and record this event, you begin to understand the significance of this evening's meeting in their minds. And I'll be honest with you, it's at this point that I wish we were studying John's gospel and not Mark. Because John records five entire chapters of dialogue that occurred just during this one meal. John 13 to 17 is happening around the Lord's table, this, this upper room meal. 
Uh, in John 13 to 16, Jesus is just teaching them about various things. And in chapter 17, John records the prayer that Jesus must have prayed as they were closing out that time together and getting ready to leave for the garden. So if you read those five chapters as a last conversation, it will change the way that you read them. You will understand them with a new significance and, and in a new light that perhaps you haven't done before. However, we're not in John, we're in Mark, and Mark has taken a very different approach to how he is recording this last interaction. Rather than recording large swaths of teaching like, like John does, Mark only records for us four key moments that occurred during that evening's meal. Now, one of those four key moments is his institution of the Lord's Supper, as we saw or read just a moment ago. And I'm going to let you know right now, I, I don't plan to talk about that at all today. We're going to come back and give all of next Sunday to, to that one moment. But today we're going to look at these other three key moments. And I want to be honest uh, with you here at the outset. I was confused <laughs> for the longest time this week as to why Mark chose to record these other three moments of this one evening's meal, as opposed to all the other stuff that he, he, he could have recorded. I mean, they're interesting maybe, uh, but I'll be honest, compared to some of the things that John writes about that were discussed that evening, I mean, I just, I just couldn't figure out why did Mark choose these other three things. But, but I think I understand it a little bit better now. And I want to try to help you understand it as well. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk us through the other three key moments, okay? Just boom, boom, boom. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I'll give you some information and details as we go. But then at the end, we'll come back and we'll ask a few questions that hopefully will bring it all together. Key moment number one comes here in verses 12 to 16. Mark begins by giving us a time marker. It's the first day of unleavened bread. It's the day they're going to sacrifice the Passover lamb, or more literally lambs. So this is probably Thursday morning, as we would think of it, of the Passion Week here. And the disciples, being observant Jews, ask Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They want to, they want to observe what the law requires. However, they have left out one important detail. They apparently haven't planned on anything. For this meal, which is really unusual considering the fact that Jerusalem at this point, the day of the sacrifice, would be completely jam packed with people. There should probably be no room left, and they are on the day of are now planning what should we do? Typical men, some of the wives are thinking. Um, it, it's really, it, it stands out because they, they should have thought about this days before. They're, they're, they're followers of a great teacher. It's their responsibility to take care of these kinds of things, and, and they have done nothing at all. However, Jesus, as you can see, has everything under control. He sends two disciples into the city with very specific instructions. They're to go in and look for a man carrying a jar of water, which is in and of itself very weird because women were normally the ones who did water carrying. That was expected of them in that culture, not a man. So this would be a very unusual thing to find. But when they find him, they're to follow him. And whatever house he goes into, they're to ask the master of that house for the guest room so that Jesus and the disciples could eat the meal there. And Jesus tells them when they do this, the master of the house is going to show them a large upper room furnished and, and ready, and that's where they should get things ready. And it's just part of my desire to help you be able to visualize what's going on. I found this 
model of a typical first century home, just so you could see it. An upper room is not a fancy thing. Don't think like a big mansion with like two stories, three stories, whatever. It's just a box on top of a box. It's a place where you store things. It's a place where you could have guests stay. It's not a big deal. It's just, it's just this. Not every house has one, but if you did, you could use it for all kinds of things. It's this kind of place that Jesus and his disciples will be using. And Mark ends this first key moment by telling us that the disciples went into the city and they found everything just as Jesus had predicted. And they prepared the Passover for him. Got it? Key moment number two comes in verses 17 to 21. And as you can see here, we've jumped forward in time a bit. And just as a point of, of detail, the Passover lamb was sacrificed at about 3 p.m. in their time. And, and, and this is not just one lamb. Every family or every group that is celebrating Passover, observing Passover, they all have to bring their lambs to the temple where the priest will kill the lamb and then give it back to them to go home to cook and prepare it. So there's some, there's some time that has to to elapse uh, uh, here in order for all this to occur. So if they're sacrificing the lambs about 3 o'clock, you can see here that we're all the way up to them uh, getting ready for dinner. They're at the table. They are now reclining, not sitting. They are reclining sort of like this. You laid on your side and ate with one hand. They're reclining at table. And, and it's in the midst of this that Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one one who is eating with me. And just note two quick things here in this statement. First, you can clearly see Jesus's omniscience, right? That he knows all things. He knows that, that he is about to be betrayed. He knows that it's one of the 12. Mark doesn't make any reference to this, but other gospel writers do. He even knows who is going to do it. It's going to be Judas, but Mark doesn't record that. All of this he knows before it happens. Second, that he emphasizes that it's one who is eating with him is designed by Nar uh, Mark, not Nark, Mark, to show the nature of this betrayal. You see, in the first century Jewish world, eating with someone is a sign of being at peace with them. It's a sign of mutual trust and, and, and friendship. And to betray someone is bad. But to betray someone whom you would eat with, who would be in that close circle for you, it is, is even worse. And you can see Jesus emphasizing that idea here. Someone close to me, someone, someone I should be able to trust. Well, the disciples respond. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? Am I the betrayer, Jesus? which is an odd question to me because they seemingly don't show any concern about Jesus being betrayed, just that they're not the ones who betray him. Do you understand the, the distinction there? There's no, oh, this is terrible that it's going to happen to you. Hey, is it me? Because I don't want it to be me. I'm good to passing on that one. Regardless, verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me, again, emphasizing this closeness. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, it almost sends shivers up my spine. Jesus is saying, no matter what, I'm going to die. Okay? The Son of Man is going to die. It's why I came. It's the whole point. This was going to happen 
no matter what. I've got to fulfill my mission, which requires my death, but, but woe to that man by whom it happens. Woe to the one who is the catalyst behind this event. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And if you go over to John and read, John tells us that after this interchange right here, Satan enters Judas and he gets up and Jesus says to him, excuse me, before he leaves, he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And then Judas gets up and leaves and gets the guards for the arrest. And yet somehow through all of this, the other disciples are clueless. They don't they don't even recognize that, that Judas is the betrayer. John tells us that they think he's going to go do something else, but they'll learn soon enough the truth. So that's key moment number two. Now key moment number four, because we're skipping three. We'll look at three next week. Key moment number four comes in verses 26 to 31. And even though I've titled this whole scenario uh, Jesus in the Upper Room, as you can see here, technically, this doesn't occur in the upper room. At this point, they're on the road. They're, they're walking out to the Mount of Olives. But I put it here because it needed to go somewhere. As, as they're walking, and I think it's connected in, as they're walking, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, if your Bible is like mine, you might have little headings above some of the paragraphs. Do you, do you have that? In, okay. If, if yours is like mine, then it could read either Peter denies Jesus or Jesus predicts Peter's denial or something along those lines. And so we tend to think about these words as being just about Peter's denial of Jesus, but I would just simply remind you to look directly at what Jesus is saying here and note that he's not simply predicting that Peter will deny him, but that all of them will. All 11, they will all deny him simply by their absence. The entire group will abandon him. But I also want you to note that not only does Jesus predict their failure, but he also predicts his own resurrection and eventually their restoration. He says, after I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. The expectation is, is that there's going to be a restoration there, a, a rejoining of the group together again with the Lord. And so this statement of Jesus as they're walking toward the garden isn't, it isn't just about Peter. It's, a, it's about all of their failures and eventually their restoration. However, in typical fashion, Peter decides to talk when he should be quiet, right? This is what he does. And, and, and so that's why your heading reads as it does. So in verse 29, Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, he's pointing at the other 10, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And as my third and last just point of historical detail, just to help you get a better understanding of what's going on, there's a little bit of ambiguity here when he says rooster crows, because this word that's used in Greek can refer to one of two things. It can refer to a male chicken going cock-a-doodle-doo, okay, a rooster crowing, or it can refer to the bugle call of the Roman watchman at night when they hey, hey, you know, they don't have clocks, so someone blows a horn at 3 o'clock in the morning, someone blows a horn at 6, kind of thing. Either way, he's basically saying before dawn comes, before the morning gets here, you, you will have denied me three times. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, and then they all chime in, yeah, we'll, we'll do the same. So, so here you have Peter and the other disciples pledging to lay down their lives for Jesus, right? They're 
They're saying they're not just willing to live for him, but they're also willing to, to die for him. So, so I guess time will tell who's right here. Either Jesus is right and they're all going to abandon him, or they're all right and they will die with him when the time comes. We'll just have to wait and see. Now, those are your three scenes. Let's think about all of this together now. Um, these are three of the four key moments that Mark records in this final time together between Jesus and the disciples, right? This is their, their last conversation. And as I was studying these three moments uh, this week, two main questions were troubling me. First, I kept asking myself the question, why these particular scenes? I mean, he could have picked anything. He could have picked any amount of teaching. He could have picked any details. Why these three and not others? And on the one hand, I have to admit, as I already said, I, I was a little disappointed because I, I kept wishing that Mark would have chosen something with a little more meat in it. I mean, John's got all this great teaching that Jesus gives. So I wish Mark had, had chosen something like that, where Jesus is teaching and instructing and guiding his disciples about what's going to happen after he, he's gone. And, and, and as you look at John, you see there's a ton of material he could have chosen. I kept wishing Mark would have recorded some of that, but of course he didn't. On the other hand, if I've learned anything about Mark over the past two and a half years, is that he is an awesome writer. He, he knows, he, he's a skilled craftsman when it comes to taking ideas, and sometimes ideas that seem very subtle, and weaving them together in such a way that it, it makes a very big and clear point. And so I knew that the reason that he chose these moments and not others was because he had some larger purpose, some grander plan that I just needed to understand, which then led me to my second question, what was that purpose? And it's at this point I want to invite you to become the student, you to become the, the, the pastor who has to answer that question. And I'm going to pose it to you this way or ask you to do this. I want you to look at your Bibles, and if you closed it, shame on you. I want you to look at your Bible for a moment. I want you to quickly review these three scenarios that we read about this morning. And I want you to look for something that is repeated in each scene, I'm looking for some kind of a theme or an idea that ties these three together in some way, shape, or form. And I'm going to give you just a moment to sit there and quietly do that. When you think you have found some connecting idea or theme, I want you to look up at me. Or when you give up, I want you to look up at me, okay? I'll give you just a moment to do this. about another 30 seconds. Something that's the same or similar in each of the three scenes. Look up at me now. Do you have an answer in mind? Something maybe? Nothing? Without saying it out loud, you can nod your head or something. How many of you would say something to the effect of that in each of these three thing, scenes, the one thing that is repeated is that Jesus clearly knows something in advance? Okay, did you see that? Okay, so, and you go back through them just for a moment, uh, just so you can see that. In the first moment, 
he predicted where they were going to eat the Passover meal. The, the disciples hadn't prepared, but he gives them all kinds of crazy details. There's going to be a guy carrying a pitcher of water, which shouldn't have happened. He's going to go into a house, and that house just happens to have an empty room in it that we can use, even though Jerusalem's completely crowded. Go follow him. We're good to go. Uh, in the second moment, he predicts his betrayal. One of the 12 is going to betray me, someone who's eating with me. He's dipping bread in the bowl with me. In the third moment, he predicts the denial of all the disciples with special detailed emphasis even on Peter. You will do it three times before dawn comes. I mean, this is super detailed. Uh, and just as a spoiler alert, all that stuff happens in the end, okay, just so you know. So clearly, uh, Jesus knows what's coming, right? He's not walking into this blindly. He's not being caught off guard or surprised by anything. Jesus knows. Is, is that why Mark has recorded these three moments to show us that, that Jesus knows? You're good not to answer. See, that, that answer didn't really satisfy me. It didn't really sit well with me, and I'll tell you why. It doesn't sit well with me because it doesn't really make sense. Mark has already, in his gospel, and just recently here in chapter 14, gone out of his way to show us that Jesus knows. I mean, let's just think back to when we were studying, I think, uh, Mark 8, what, 8 through 10. We were studying that second subsection and, and I told you that the thing that kind of bound that section together were those three foretellings of Jesus' death. You remember that? Way back then, if you were here for that part. You know, three times there in, in Mark 8 through 10, Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm going to be arrested, tortured, uh, executed, buried. I'm going to rise again. Jesus knows, right? He, he made it clear back then. He knows. Even then, here just as recently as our last time in Mark together, when we were looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, I said to you that the purpose of that section, I think, is to show us that Jesus is not just some helpless victim walking into a trap. You, know, you, you see that, that intercalation there where at the beginning there's plotting by the, the priest. We need someone who will, who will betray him. And at the end you see Judas is the guy who's going to do it. And so you're like, oh no, Jesus is going to get caught. He doesn't know what's coming. But in the middle you see that he clearly does know. He recognizes he's going to die. He recognizes that he's going to be buried. Jesus isn't a victim he is purposefully, willingly, knowingly laying down his life. It's not being taken from him. He's laying it down. Jesus knows. So then, if Mark has already made it clear, both previously in his gospel that Jesus knows, and here just recently in chapter 14, 1 through 11, then why would he go through all this trouble of trying to show us again? that Jesus knows. It's redundant. It's unnecessary. We get it, Mark, right? We don't, you don't need to keep making the point. We understand. Something just wasn't right. And, and then, then something hit me. You see, I wasn't exactly asking the right question, nor was I noticing something else that is repeating in each of these three moments. You see, it, it seemed to me that what Mark was showing us was that Jesus knew what was going to happen. That Jesus knew what he was about to do. But then I realized that I think Mark is showing us that Jesus also knows who he's doing these things for. And that makes a huge difference. Think again now about 
these three moments. And recognize that in each of them, the disciples are cast in a negative light. And it's, it increases each time the scene happens. The first moment isn't terrible necessarily. It's just that they're completely unprepared for Passover, which again, in that culture, is almost unimaginable. As followers of a great teacher, it's their responsibility to get this thing together. They should have been all on top of this from like two weeks ago. They should have called in, gone on orbit, something. They should have had a place ready to go. It's their responsibility. They don't do it, so they come across as unfaithful, unprepared. The second moment is far worse. Not only are they unprepared and unfaithful, but one of them is a traitor. One of them is a betrayer. And the fact that Mark doesn't give us any indication of who it is. Remember I told you that it was unusual. He Other gospel writers tell us who it is in advance. Jesus knows in advance. Mark gives us no indication. It casts a suspicion on all of them. If you were reading this for the very first time and you didn't know what was happening, you'd be like, who is it? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Is it Bartholomew? Is it Matthew? Is it all the other ones whose names I don't remember? Who is it? I don't know. And, and, and then their response on top of it is it's so selfish, it's almost hard to believe. No apparent concern for Jesus. Just a concern, oh, I don't want to be the guy. You know, it's like, pass the buck, you know, first one, not me, huh? not you, okay, you're it, sorry. You know, that, that's the only thing they seem concerned about. So who is it? We don't know. But at least one of them is going to do it. The other 11 will not. So one of them's a, a, a traitor. And then you get to this third moment, and now Jesus announces that the remaining 11, all the ones who aren't traitors, by the way, will all deny him and all abandon him at his most critical hour of need. Uh, they may not be the ones who betray him to death, and they may make these grandiose affirmations of their loyalty, but in the end, they all abandon him to suffer and die alone. They run and hide to save their own skins. See a theme developing? Uh, selfish, unfaithful, disloyal, lies, they're traitors, they're deniers. This is who Jesus is dying for. And he knows it. He knows who he's dying for. He's not going to be caught off guard as to who it is he's about to sacrifice himself for. He's, he's not looking at his disciples through some rose-colored glasses thinking, you know, these guys are so wonderful, I just want to die for them. These are, if there was ever a group of men in this world worthy of dying for, it's these 11 guys, I love them so much. That's, that's not Jesus' take. He sees them for what they are. And I would just challenge you, I did this for myself this week, and it was extremely convicting. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment knowing what you know about these 11 guys, knowing the end of the story of what they're going to do, would you die for them? I mean, would you knowingly, willingly give yourself over to a terrible, torturous death for this group of men? Would you take on the wrath of God for the sin of all humanity for people like this? Would you? I wouldn't even die for myself if I'm Jesus. See, I realized my heart works like a scale more than I'd like to admit. And, and I'm good with loving you when you love me back. 
I'm good with caring for you when you care for me back. I'm good with serving you when you serve me back. As long as we keep the scale kind of in line, we're good. I, I want people to earn my love. I want people to deserve my care. I want people to, to warrant my service. As long as you keep adding, I'll keep adding too. Quid pro quo is the name of the game. This for that, something for something. Far more than most of us would like to admit. May I just remind you that our God does not work like that. You see, if we were looking at his scale on our side, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. I guess it would be the other way. We've got nothing to put on our side of the scale for him. It's all his. We, we can't earn his love. We can't deserve his care. We can't warrant his service. And he knows that. He knows who we are. And so, rather than abandoning, abandoning us to that fate, which we would do to anyone else if we were in God's shoes, he gives his own son to even the scale. He sends his son to die for us so that the righteousness of Jesus could be put on that scale on our behalf. And this is no foolish act of his, no, no moment of his like, well, if I'd have known what they were going to be, I wouldn't have done that kind of thing. I, I read you a quote from Packer just a few weeks ago uh, where he says that God's knowledge of us is utterly realistic. He knows the worst about us and loves us still. There's no surprise, no development, nothing that comes along that, that changes his feelings towards us because he has set his love on us and will not remove it, not because we deserve it, just simply out of his own love and grace. The song we sang earlier, My Hope is in the Lord, two of the lines say this, No merit of my own, nothing to add to the scale. His anger to suppress, my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. His grace has planned it all, tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love. In Christ receive. And our text this morning reminds us of this great grace that, that has planned since before the foundation of the world and in full knowledge of how wicked and sinful we would be. It has planned to redeem us, to make us his own through the sacrifice, through the perfect love, the righteousness of Jesus, through our faith in him. Jesus knew, what only, knew not only what he was about to do, he knew who he was doing it for. And I want us to rejoice in that this morning. Will you bow your heads with me as we begin to thank God for this great grace and great love that died for us despite who we are. Father, we, we are undeserving. We are unworthy of such love, such, such kindness, such mercy. As we think about the scale, we realize in our own hearts that we, we don't treat people like this. We, we want them to serve us, love us, care for us. And if they do, maybe we'll do the same back. If you operated that way toward us, we would have no hope. We can never make it right. We can never earn your love or deserve your care, warrant your service. But we don't have to. Your love for us, your knowledge of us, it was utterly realistic. It knows the worst about us, and yet it chose us still. And it's in that hope and in that truth that we rejoice this morning. 
recognizing that the disciples aren't worse than we are. They're not more selfish, more prone to betrayal or denial than we are. Our hearts are just as theirs is, probably worse. And, and yet your love for us is, again, based on complete knowledge of who we are. You knew. You know who we are, and you gave yourself anyway. And so when Satan comes and he, he attacks our confidence in the gospel, when he attempts to remind us of our sins and show us how unworthy we are, may we just run back to this truth that our hope isn't in our righteousness and it's not in the scale that we can add things to. It's in Jesus alone, his loving, gracious, sacrificial death on our behalf and full knowledge of who we were. We have been perfectly loved, perfectly accepted now, not in our own merit, but in his. And so we rejoice in that this morning and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.